The Matt Hasselbeck Show. Presented by Infinity of Bellevue. Seahawks legend Matt Hasselbeck takes you inside the Seahawks and the NFL for a full hour. Exclusively on the Mike Sox Show. Yeah, we've been excited about this for a little while now. The debut of something that, honestly, I think we started talking about when we launched the station and Matt was the starting quarterback here in Seattle in 2009. The Matt Hasselbeck Show. Finally. After all these years on 710 ESPN Seattle. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hey, let's go, Sock. Let's go. <laughs> this is great. First text came in, said, just hand Hasselbeck the keys and walk out of the studio, Salk. Please, just let Matt do this thing by himself. So, I don't well, know. You're I don't stuck know. With I've got a, I've, my youngest child has uh, his learner's permit right now. Oh. So, I just handed him the keys. Oh. And it was a very adventurous drive to school today. Let me just say that. Um, the fir- Yeah, I bet it was. How nerve-wracking is that as a dad? You know what? It's uh, It's been a lot better than I thought. Um, you know, teenage drivers and all that. And a lot of these roads, I live in Boston now, and like a lot of these roads, as you probably know, were designed for horses and not yes, cars. Yes, I'm aware. And, you know, now we've got like, you know, SUVs coming at us and, you know, and trucks and you know, the the fear of other people texting while they're driving and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it, it's an adventure. Anybody who has teenage drivers knows, but uh, so far, so good, good for us. And uh, we say our prayers every night because of it. I'll give you uh, I'll give you and, and him a tip uh, near you near where you live. I got a ticket uh, the second week I had my license, two hundred and fifty dollar ticket because there was a little oh. speed trap where it dropped Ouch. from forty five to twenty five. So if you head into Wayland on the other side of Route twenty, where one twenty six splits from twenty seven. I want you to be careful over there because they'll just sit there and wait and nab you, or at least they did 30 years ago. Okay. So. You know, you're right. You probably should give me the keys. That, no one <laughs> We're, done that. We're done here. We're done here. How are you? How are you doing? Kind of what are you up to? Before we dig into football, we got a ton of football stuff, and I want to talk to you a lot about Russ and Shane Waldron and all that. But just other than seeing you on ESPN and knowing that you're going into the Ring of Honor this year, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, listen, like, I'm, so I'm mentioned, I'm living in Boston. Um, I'm working out. I'm staying in like shape, like working out with high school football kids. You know, putting them through workouts and then doing it myself. I'm working for ESPN. I'm on Sunday NFL Countdown, Sunday mornings, uh, 10 a.m. Eastern to 1 p.m. Kind of the pregame show that ESPN has for all the football games. And then I'm just doing some other things. I'm Tuesday nights. I'm teaching a uh, co-teaching a sports law class at Boston College, which is uh, I probably should be taking the class, not teaching the class. <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm I'm definitely more busy than I thought I would be. But uh, I love being as close to the game as I am right now, and also having the opportunity to be home. Uh, we've got one more child living at home here, so uh, getting to see him play his various sports cool. uh, up close and personal is great. And my girls are nearby at Boston College, both playing lacrosse at BC. Uh, my oldest, she just they won the national championship last year. The most nervous I've ever been for a game in my entire life was the, the BC lacrosse game to end the year last year. Never got that nervous as a player, but as a dad, it's, uh, it's totally different so yeah. uh that's that's kind of a quick snapshot of what's going on so they're lacrosse players your wife is a field hockey player right or was she also yeah lacrosse? like field hockey it's a sport that most people don't even know about my girls played field hockey when we moved back here we moved back here so they could go to high school and literally they had never even seen a field <laughs> hockey game till the day they tried out for the team and the only thing they knew about it was that their mom played but uh yeah it, it you know there are some sports that are up here that i didn't necessarily growing up know 
knowing a lot about. Um, it was kind of, for me, it was just like the normal football, basketball, baseball. But up here, it's hockey. It's field hockey. It's ice. It's, uh, um, it's lacrosse. lacrosse. It's, you know, and obviously all the other sports. Sure. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing transitioning from the guy who was playing. I was always like the last person out of the locker room, like after a Seahawk game. And now I think payback is coming because my kids are now the last player out of the locker room. It's like, I'm waiting, you know, you know, like every parent who has kids who play sports. My kids are the last. I'm like, really? You're the last one out of the locker room? They're like, dad, you were always the last right. one out of the locker room. I'm like, ah, shoot. Why okay. were you always the last? What were you doing? <sighs> Probably get nice up, you know, like, uh, I wasn't, I was, it's a very physical, physical job to, to play in the NFL. I mean, you just take a beating. Some guys are naturally just like really big, strong, fit, athletic. My thing was like, I, I don't think I was naturally that. I had to work really, really hard. Like I had, I had to like lift weights in the off season. Like the worst year I ever had in my career, um, was, you know, 2009, I would say the 2008 season, I was battling an injury. And then, so that off season in between, I didn't train and lift the way that I needed to, you know, instead of doing deadlifts and power cleans and stuff like that, I was doing like, Oh, let's do some bodyweight lunges. It was like, like everyone was trying not to trying to make sure I didn't get hurt. Me too. But what I learned about myself in the process was like, Hey, listen, you got to be all in on the training part of it or you're going to be a very mediocre player. Um, you know, so like, I I think, you know, for me, whether it was pregame or postgame, I had to do all the things that were, uh, that were sort of necessary, whether it was ice tub or, you know, whatever. I just really, I think, take care of myself, uh, more so than the guys that just kind of like, yeah, just showed up and, and went home and just relied on natural ability. I kind of forget that you were here for, for Jim Mora's year. I, I, I think of you with Holmgren and remember that you were here with Pete, but I kind of forget that you were here for that Mora year. So I'm sure over the course of this, uh, of this show, not just today, but over this course of this year, we'll talk about that. The texters are not just taking shots at me, by the way. They're taking shots at you. A bunch of people suggesting you were late because you were working on your hair, which I feel is unnecessary. <laughs> That's No, gratuitous. but I will tell you this. I wore eye black, right? I wore eye black, and I wore real eye black. It used to kind of bother me when guys would wear, like, the fake stickers. Right. Like, uh, you know, just put real wear, wear real eye black if you're going to wear eye black. Well, the the... The thing that maybe people know or people don't know, that stuff is hard to get off, man. Like, it is hard to get off. Like, you, like, gotta, like, scrub it off. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and, and don't ever get it in your eyes. That, that happened once. I don't recommend that either. During a game? No, no, no. Okay. Like, like you forget, you, you know, you just like you forget it's on and then, uh, you know, you like, you rub your face or something <laughs> like that, but. No, during a game, we were good. I had other issues during the games, but never with iBlack. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about week one and kind of what we saw and what we've been talking about here in Seattle. Matt Hasselbeck here for the Matt Hasselbeck Show. Um, Shane Waldron is the new offensive coordinator. He has really been the guy that, that I think most of us have, certainly that I've focused on after this first week because he's what's new, right? And he's kind of stuck in this in-between spot between Pete and Russ and, you know, Pete and his desire for balance in the offense and Russ, who who wants to seem, seems like he wants to throw the ball more. And Waldron's got to walk this really fine line between them both and then also bring creativity and all the other things that we, to modernize what had started to look like a very stale offense. What did you see from the Seahawks offensively in week one? Yeah, I thought you were just wanting to talk Shane Waldron because he, like you, he's kind of a prep school boy from uh, Boston. That's kind of what I was expecting. He is that. He did. He. We've talked about this. He was a coach at BBN for a year. 
Yeah, so listen, he's kind of had this really impressive, quick rise uh, to be the offensive coordinator for Seattle. I mean, literally, he was coaching high school football not a long, not a long time ago. Uh, you know, up here, and he's worked his way up. And everybody you talk to about him uh, has great things to say. Obviously, you know, he wouldn't be hired otherwise. But I thought week one. The Seattle performance on offense was as impressive as a performance for any of the teams that kind of held their starters out for most of the preseason. Mm. You know, he, he, he was just, uh, you know, dealing in terms of calling the game. And, and people want to always talk about the relationship between the offensive coordinator and the quarterback. Like in this case, Russell Wilson. Oh, is he going to call plays that jive with Russ? Is he going to call plays that are, you know, that Russ is, Russ is going to get into a rhythm? I would say almost more important than that, is he going to jive with the philosophy of Pete Carroll? Pete Carroll knows exactly what he wants to be as a head coach, what he wants to be as an offense, and how that's going to fit with his defense. Last year, they kind of lost their identity for a way, for a while. And I think obviously it was, a, you know, they struggled uh, defensively because of mm-hmm. the struggles that they had on offense. Like those guys were out on the field way too much. And you saw right away, Chris Carson is the focal point in that running game is the focal point of everything that they're going to do in the passing game. But Russell looked calm. He looked poised. He looked, uh, like he had answers and, 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 and I can kind of go into detail why, but like that, that's, that was the thing that stuck out to me. This is a great fit. Um, well, tell me offensively. why. Why is it? Why do you, th- why do you think he was, cause there are times over the last few years of watching this team, there are moments where they don't look like a normal NFL team. It's like everyone else is running an offense the way it's supposed to be done in the NFL. And they're just like desperately trying to come up with a completion before Russell gets sacked. Why did it look more normal? Well, I think uh, one of the things that was probably a point of emphasis was Russell not getting sacked as much, you know, and like so like the focus again, you know, you talk about how they script the first 15 plays the night before. okay, and I would sit in those meetings all the time with the offensive coordinator or the play caller or the quarterback coach or whoever. And instead of saying like, hey, what are your favorite seven or eight passes in the first 15 plays? They would like start out with like, Hey, here are the plays that the offensive line is going to like, <laughs> you know, like, are you okay with that? And it's a great way to view the, to kind of view the game plan. Um, you know, less sacks on Russell helps everybody. It helps the confidence of the offensive line. It helps field position for the defense and it allows Russ to do what he needs to do when those opportunities are there. So if you look at how they started that game, they got the ball out quick. They got the ball out on time and there were quite a few runs. And really, I think that's, that's probably the thing that I would say fit. So they probably went into this game, maybe even into the off season saying, we got to have less sacks. Mm-hmm. Like for for as mobile as Russell Wilson is, he gets sacked way too much. I th- I want to say they like he was top five yeah. in sacks last year, yep. which is like kind of unheard of because he's you know he's Houdini back there. But so I just thought how they called the game and they weren't really necessarily overly concerned with getting everyone the ball. I mean it was the second half till DK Metcalf even had a catch. You know, and, and it, you know, meanwhile, in the first half, they're just spreading it around. Uh, Gerald Everett has, I think, two screen passes and then a handoff. Um, you know, so like the, the ball was just getting spread around. I think, uh, in general, I'm sorry, do you have to deal with that as a quarterback when if you're out there and, and you've got a guy like DK who is essentially frozen out for a half? 
Do you say something to him? Do you do, you do something to keep him engaged? Yeah, that's that's something that everyone has to do, um, and it and it's honest. Like it's not like uh, you know, it's not like a false. You're not lying to the guy. Like, hey, no, I'm trying to get you involved. <laughs> We're trying to get you involved. But when you've got such a star player like DK Metcalf, that is very difficult. And I actually felt like if you like if you rewatch the game. At halftime, they clearly went in and looked at everything and said, "Oh shoot, you know, DK doesn't have a, cat, a catch. Let's let's get him involved in the game." And then they've kind of forced some. I thought they like called plays to try to get him opportunities, just to kind of get him going, mm. which is a good thing to do. I would say that's what everyone would do. And and ultimately, though, I don't think they were nearly as good in the third quarter as they were in the first half. Like, he's a good enough player. I think the ball will come to him. The ball will find him. And, and clearly it did. I think later in the game, you know, he, uh, you know, I think he caught it like a deep ball, a deep yep. comeback on a, on kind of like a hard play action pass kind of thing. And then obviously he had the touchdown as well. So I think that's part of being a leader, um, you know, at the quarterback position that Russell does really well. Uh, but it's also part of a co- being a coaching staff that understanding like, hey, formationally, let's put him in positions where the ball will find him instead of, you know, forcing him like a little screen or a five yard pass or, you know, those kinds of things that that'll keep him, quote unquote, happy. I think he'll be happy when when he's able to just go out and play within the system and then make his plays like he ended up doing by the end of the game. But I'm sure for him, the first half was incredibly frustrating. Who 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 was the best wide receiver you played with? I would say Daryl Jackson, which 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 is kind of a telling thing because he's a good wide receiver. Yeah, he's a good wide receiver. You know, he 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 caught probably thirty something touchdowns for us. Like he was our he was our but, he was our receiver that we put on the tight end side. He was our most uncoverable outside right. receiver, I would say. But you I didn't to, play with a DK. I mean, you didn't play with a physical freak, Randy Moss, To. I mean, like you never had that kind. And I don't want to put the label diva necessarily on DK, but the kind of guy that could rise to being one of the diva wide receivers of the league. Yeah, listen. I mean, they're all diva-ish a little bit. I mean, if we're being real about <laughs> Obviously, it, okay. Yes. But but you're right. It, the it's probably harder to play with a guy that knows he could take over a game if he was in an offense that said, "Hey, we need you to take over the game." Like it, it, that, there are probably extra pressures. The difference on this team, though, is. Pete Carroll is very confident in who he is as a coach and what he wants to be offensively. He knows what he wants to be offensively. And it doesn't necessarily have very much to do with forcing 15 targets to a star wide receiver. He knows that, hey, if we're, you know, if everything's working with our run game and most, this kind of all goes back to the offensive line. Mm -hmm. If the offensive line can protect, then Lockett and DK and everyone else, they're going to get their opportunities. But if the quarterback's on his back or running for his life, then it really, it just, that's not the formula that works for this team. So I I do think it's going to be up to the leadership of you know guys like Pete Carroll and Shane and and that kind of thing but it's also going to be up to the unselfishness of guys like DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett who know they could be putting up numbers that other guys are putting up with more targets and that kind of thing 
But they just have to be patient, wait their time, realize the ball will probably find them. And I think this week one matchup was a pretty good indication of that. Like DK ends the day with, you know, he's got a touchdown catch. Uh, I think he only had two catches for the day, but one was an important touchdown catch. Yep. And Tyler Lockett, if it wasn't for, uh, you know, um, he, I, he's just a guy that seems to like take advantage of opportunities that might not have ever come. You know, like the the first ca- touchdown catch was that just ridiculously yeah. impressive catch on the on the on the blitz, on the all out blitz. But like he didn't know that that was going to happen. I mean, you could you could say that hey, you know, they they're going to blitz in that situation because that's the spot where they can knock you from field goal to punt. But other than that, you know, he he didn't have a deep ball planned to come to him that that time. It just was predicated by you know the the other defense taking a taking an aggressive chance. He and Russ must have some sort of a communication before that, right? Of like, if this happens, then that's going to happen. I think one of the biggest things I learned my first year in the NFL was like the the, the details of tendencies, and you know, like I just kind of said, like there's you you split it up every which way. You know, analytics play such a big role in football right now, mm-hmm. but there is a there is a zone. For in every defensive coordinator has the di- a different zone, but maybe I would say a popular zone would be the 23 yard line to say the 31 yard line. Your antenna, wide receiver, uh, quarterback, whoever you are, has to go way up to expect an all out pressure in that range. 23 yard line to the 31 yard line. And what is the reason? Well, the reason is basically, hey, listen, we know you're probably going to make a field goal from this range, but if we can get home, we can get a holding penalty or we can get a sack, then you're going from a situation where you're attempting a field goal to mm-hmm. now you're attempting a punt. And so I don't think it was like accidental, like, oh gosh, wow, they, they, they came all out blitz. I'm sure that, you know, Russell Wilson and company were prepared for that moment so that when the all out blitz came, cause it was a great disguise. They showed a too high safety and then boom, they like shifted right at the snap where it was no high safeties. And, you know, that's where the chemistry came in terms of like the throw and the catch. But being prepared for the moment, anticipating the moment, I don't think was an accident. I think they were ready. I'm always so fascinated by the ability of of professional athletes. And I know it starts earlier and earlier now to ad lib in those moments, recognize the situation and, and what they need to do. I mean, again, playing no higher than than lousy high school football. I always just remember thinking that everything was supposed to be rote. Like if, you know, there, you just knew exactly what the play was and how could you ever deviate from that and still have two people on the same page? And yet it seems like that's such a huge, crucial part of how these offenses function nowadays. Well, the chemistry that those two guys have, you know, Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett is really impressive. And the rote part of it is like, okay, it's third down. I shift my mind to third down. It's third and six. Okay, got it. Third and six to 10 is a high blitz down for them. What else is a high blitz down? Hey, when we get from the 23 to the 31, okay, antenna up. But then once the ball is snapped, I mean, Russell Wilson let that ball go when Tyler Lockett was on maybe the 12-yard line, and he ends up catching the ball maybe two or three yards from the back of the end zone. That's the part that's anticipatory. That's the part that is chemistry and trust Mm -hmm. and giving him the opportunity. Really, you know, he's running kind of a post route, and he throws it over the other shoulder 
it was just, it was a really athletic and really creative play. And again, I think from Russell Wilson's point of view, if I'm grading out the quarterback play, I say this is a really great play because it's an us or nobody throw, mm. uh, us or nobody throw. Like we either catch it for a touchdown or I protected the team by giving us the field goal, keeping, uh, preserving the field goal opportunity instead of holding on to the ball, trying to make something happen. And then all of a sudden we're punting. All right, we start off. It's Matt Hasselbeck show here, 710 ESPN Seattle. We started off talking about coordinators and Shane Waldron. I know you played for Mike Holmgren, who was sort of head coach slash play caller. What sort of relationships did you have with your other coordinators throughout the years? Who else Who else did you play with? Yeah, well, you know, even just going back to the beginning with Mike Holmgren, my first year when we were still playing at Husky Stadium, Mike Holmgren would call the play and then he would, you know, he would call the play to the coaching staff and then Jim Zorn was the coach on the sideline who would then call it into my helmet. So for those who don't know, there's a, there's a speaker system that goes in every quarterback's helmet and the coach, one coach on the sideline can talk to the quarterback until the play clock gets down to 15 seconds. Once the play clock gets down to 15 seconds, that uh, coach to quarterback communication system shuts off. So that first year was Jim Zorn, who was new to the coaching staff. I was obviously new to the team. And, you know, it was kind of like a little bit of the game of telephone. Uh, a quick example would be Mike Holmgren would say something like this on second and one every time. I, I didn't know this at the time. I should have realized it. Second and one every time was going to be a running play, either a dive to Max Strong or a weak side lead to Sean Alexander. Second and one. And so I would have all these run game checks that we would do all the, all week. Mike Holmgren would call the play. He'd say, hey, fullback at zero, uh, get the first down. And what what did he mean by get the first down? I used to think that was a weird thing for him to say. But when he was calling the play to Jim Zorn, to me, he would just call the play, hey, fullback at zero. He wouldn't necessarily, Jim wouldn't, why would he relay get the first down? He would just say fullback at zero. And so we didn't play well that first year. That next year, it changed where Mike Holmgren was not only calling the plays, but the one speaking into my helmet. And he would say fullback at zero, get the first down. Well, I didn't know what that meant. Like if I got the bad look, I'd audible or whatever. It was like the next year where he like kind of screamed at me one time. He's like, I told you to get the first down. And I'm like, well, my rule is to audible if this. He's like, no, no, no. When I say get the first down, that means do not audible under any circumstance whatsoever. I'm like, oh, okay. So like I think there's just a, a, a tempo and a rhythm and, and kind of language and verbiage that you get to – uh, you get on the same page with the guy calling the plays. And it took me way too long, uh, looking back, critiquing myself. It took me way too long to get on the same page with Mike in that regard. And then it got to the point where maybe my, maybe even like my third or fourth year as the starter, I could finish the sentence. Like he would start out the play. He'd be like, all right, we got Brown right slot, A right. I'm like, got it. Fullback zero. I would start calling the play in the huddle. I already knew. This was a Max Strong play. Mm-hmm. You know, if he started out, okay, we're going to go I right. I'm like, okay, got it. This is a Sean Alexander play. And and so like that's the that's what I think is so impressive when you get a brand new coordinator who comes in and fits into a new scheme with a entrenched starter and that kind of thing that they're able to do it. And I I had to deal with that a little bit with uh with other guys as we went, but when it was Mike for such a long stretch, it was very helpful. 
I got to hear. We, we got to take a quick break, which I'm, I'm I literally want to apologize to the audience that we have to take a break because this has been awesome. And I feel like I'm learning a lot, and really enjoying it. But I, I want to follow up on some of how that changed as you ended up, you know, playing for first Mora and then eventually for Pete here and how some of that some of that chemistry, some of that philosophy ended up being different. We want to go around the NFL if we have time and then we're going to have some fun and rank things with you at the end from your own career. So Matt Hasselbeck is here. It is the Matt Hasselbeck show on 710 ESPN Seattle. The Matt Hasselbeck Show, presented by Infinity of Bellevue. Every Wednesday from 9 to 10. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Matt Hasselbeck Show rolling on here. It is 710 ESPN Seattle. I promise before we ask Matt some more questions uh, and hear some more good stories, uh, we do have tickets which were given away for the Seahawks opener on Sunday. The code word contest. Go to 710sports.com slash win. Enter the code word quarterback, pretty simple, quarterback, to be entered to win a pair of tickets to the Seahawks host the Titans in the home opener on Sunday. The code word expires at 10 a.m., so you only have a half hour to do this. Details and rules at 710sports.com slash win. Go to 710sports.com slash win. Enter the code word quarterback. Um, people quarterback. Are- hey, up here in Boston, they say quarterback. Quarterback. Hey, get the quarterback. <laughs> You remember, I remember growing up and uh, playing just like, you know, at the school and in elementary school and stuff at recess. It was always just Q. Like, I get to be Q this time. Did you guys say that also? I don't know. I'd never played quarterback. I was always like, I always wanted to be a wide receiver. Really? But yeah. What happened? I wasn't fast enough. I was okay. giraffe, giraffe on ice, remember? Yes. I forgot about that. <laughs> it's a good thing you could throw the ball okay. You know what? I do remember Pete Carroll's first year. I ran a touchdown in. First game at home. I San remember Francisco. that. It was like a one-yard run, but I feel like I had to run like 53 and a third yard I think it, that. I think it was the <laughs> – I mean, jokes aside, I'll, I'll come clean. I think that was – I remember talking to Brock after. It's like, I don't know how, many, how much longer Matt's going to be doing this. Like, you were hey, sort of limping over to the right corner of the end zone. Is that right? No. Nah, Different one? Not a different one. Oh, maybe this that was is to the left corner. Oh, okay. But the, I'm, I'm thankful there's no like there was no instant replay like in slow mo high def like there is now because oh, no. I'm sure if you watch that play back they'd like stop it and be like nope the knee was down at like the four <laughs> the ball wasn't anywhere near the goal line but uh, it counted back then so I'll 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 take it. I love the stories of of Holmgren and how you guys grew with your uh, with your chemistry over time. But eventually, you know, he moves on. 2009, you have Jim Mora, and then eventually Pete Carroll the next year. You know, how, what is Pete's sideline like? What is it like being around a Pete Carroll team on game day on the sidelines? Yeah, well, for me, it was very different. I did have some, like, uh, you know, some movement in the, in the middle there with, like, obviously, when Jim Zorn left, Bill Lazor, who's now the offensive coordinator of the Chicago Bears, he became the quarterback's coach. The next year with, uh, Jim Mora, Greg Knapp, uh, was the offensive coordinator, quarter, quarterback's coach. But with Pete Carroll, when he came in, both his co- offensive coordinator and his quarterback's coach were both younger than me. I mean, it, it, so like that was a transition because I was used to just, I come in the room, I shut up, I take notes, I listen. And then with Pete, it was very much like his offensive coaching staff. It was kind of like a lot of conversation. What do you like? How does this go? You know, hey, here's what we've done. What can you teach us? What can you tell us? And I actually, in a weird way, I feel like I almost learned more that way because of the dialogue. Um, not really sure why, but I would say on game day, 
the biggest change, I mean, even just going back to that wild card win that we had in the Beastquake game against the New Orleans Saints, I had been turning the ball over a lot that year. Pete's whole thing was it's all about the ball. Don't turn the ball over. And interestingly, that's the most I had ever turned the ball over. It's almost like when someone tells you, hey, don't leave the putt short. Like, what do you do? Like, you leave the putt short. I don't, I don't know what that is or why that is, but that's what I was doing. And my very first pass in that game gets intercepted, like a third and one interception first pass of the game. And I run to the sidelines like, shoot, man, he's just going to rip me. And he is just going to take me out of the game. He's going to bench me, all this stuff. And he was like Mr. Positivity. He was like, hey, it's okay. We need you to get this win today. We need you. Let's go. And it was kind of like, whoa, like that, that was completely different. Not that one style is right and one style is wrong, but that, that just was not the style of Mike Holmgren. Mike Holmgren puts you in the, you know, kind of in the pressure cooker and made, it was almost like, his standard mm-hmm. was the opponent more so than the the actual opponent. When so I assume growing the, up, you had gotten the the Mike Holmgren style more often than the Pete Carroll style. Yeah, I got a little bit of both. You know, to be honest, I started out in college. Tom Coughlin was my head coach. You know, I had a bunch of different styles of coaches, but uh, but I do think truly like. The puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle that you have on a coaching staff, kind of good cop, bad cop. There is some, there's some real science to that. Some people have mastered it. I think Pete Carroll's as good as there is. Uh, in fact, the, the class that I'm teaching, there's a, one of the case studies that we're doing. Harvard Business School did a, an entire case study on the coaching style of Pete Carroll and uh, Steve Kerr. Like they, they, they devoted an entire like case study to the Pete Carroll method, as they call it. Very interesting. And you're there like, hey, I've, I've been a part of this thing. I, I actually played for the guy, so let me give you a little bit of insight. Well, I'm actually in the case study. It was, oh, you're it in it. Fa- it, it. Well, I'm probably one of the many, many people. You know, when you're a 34-year-old, 35-year-old quarterback who had been in the NFL a long time and then a college coach comes in, there's a perception of how that's going to go. And some people would say, oh, it's going to go poorly. And uh, I think I kind of thought it might go poorly. And what I found was it was incredible. Like, it was so much fun. It was, uh, it was, it was fascinating. And, and now that, like, you know, he gave me such a hard time that year because I was about to turn 35. So now I love talking about the fact that he's, I think he's turning 70. Today. Today is Pete's birthday. Today is Pete's 70th birthday. He literally turned 70 today. We were talking with him on Monday because during the broadcast, they threw up other coaches who had coached into their 70s. And Marv Levy was on there. And I was like, man, when Marv Levy was coaching, I thought he was like the oldest man alive. And Pete was saying the same thing. He was like, man, I think he said he thought Marv was older than the Hills. And so, like, I don't think he ever imagined he'd be coaching at this age. But he's doing it. And, and, you know, in some ways, it sure seems as I look around the league, Pete's in, in some ways, not in all, as modern as any other coach in the NFL today. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it's because he's willing to change and adapt and, uh, and grow as a, as a person and grow as a coach. And you see a lot of people, I know as a quarterback, when you go up, like you look at your schedule, like, Oh, who do we got? And you're like, Oh, we got this team. Like, who's the coordinator? Got it. That guy will never change. Here's what he does. <laughs> I don't think you can really say that about Pete. You, you really don't know. I mean, he could, he, he, you know, he's a cover three team and then all of a sudden, no, he's a, he's a man team or they don't blitz. Now they're blitzing. Like he, he seems to adapt and change and, I think it's one of the one of the reasons that they uh you know they they've had so much success. Who are some of the other coaches in the league today that you think are doing a really good job? 
Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of guys. Um, you know, Sean McVay comes to mind right now. Um, you know, he's a guy that like all the pressure in the world was on him when he got rid of Jared Goff, and they just paid Jared Goff. He, Jared Goff took you to the Super Bowl. Jared, you know, and then all of a sudden you just cut the cord and you give up a lot to go get Matthew Stafford. What's that going to look like? It looked outstanding. I think another guy that's uh, kind of in a make it or break it year this year would be Cliff Kingsbury. You know, is this is this like uh, air raid offense going to fly? You know, at times it's looked good, other times not so much. They came out and made a statement. I mean, that he came out and made a statement. Um, you know, a, as a head coach, I would say offensively and defensively, defensively they were ready to go. Uh, you know, there's different styles. You know, like so th- those are those are two guys that I think stick out to me um, right off the bat. And I'm curious what happens with Bill Belichick this year. You know, last year was uh, kind of a you know throwaway yeah. year for that team. Are you? And are you I'd like, like to see? Are you thinking Belichick? A little, are you looking at him at all differently with the success Brady's having in Tampa and the lack of success so far in New England without Brady? At the end of the year, I think that's the time to have that okay. decision or that kind of conversation because Brady went and did it with someone else and did it at a high level, and he's almost playing better than he ever has, almost, and. And so like, okay, so, okay, now the ball's in your court. What can you do with, uh, you know, you just spent 160 something million dollars in free agency, the most of any other team in the history of the NFL. You go get a first round quarterback. Uh, you know, you cut ties with Cam Newton. Like, okay, all right. So this, here's your chance to kind of, uh, you know, what do they say in, in hockey? The answer goal. Yeah. Someone scores, you score right away. You know, so that's, I kind of think that that's part of, uh, you know, one of the storylines of this year with, uh, you know, with, with seeing how they do without Tom. I, I was wrong. I think we'll find out. I think you're right. We won't know more till the end of the year, but I was always of the belief that Belichick was more important to the success there than Brady and seeing it now. I don't know. Right, maybe I'm not wrong yet, but I'm certainly like questioning all of the years of thinking one way because I, I'm not a huge Bruce Arians guy. And to see what, what Brady has done there, I think it's just remarkable. I, it's remarkable, but you can't, I, Bill Belichick deserves some of the credit for the Tom, the player that Tom Brady is today. That's a good and point. For even, for even some of the things that they're doing in Tampa. Like, for example, like Gronk is part of a weapon. Uh, you know, he's one of the weapons that they have there. Who trained Gronk? Who made Gronk Gronk? The, the Patriot method, the Patriot way made Gronk mm. what he is. That's and in point. the same way, Tom Brady, last year in the playoffs, I think it was the playoffs, the Bucks are playing the Packers. It's late in the year. And the Bucks are getting the Packers defense numerous times with 12 men on the field. Uh, or they're, they're just pressing the tempo when they decide to. That's not like a thing Bruce Arians thought up late in the year last year. That's something that the Patriots and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady have been doing for a decade, maybe two decades. And so, like, you take all the good Bruce Arians, then you, you know, then you add in what Tom Brady brings to the table. Which is how he was trained by Bill Belichick and company, and that's what won them the Super Bowl. So I don't think you can really uh, talk about that Super Bowl and not give Bill Belichick some of the credit for the player that Tom Brady became. Good stuff. All right, Matt Hasselbeck is here. It is the Matt Hasselbeck Show. One more quick break, and then we'll come back a little bit more of Matt. We're going to ask him to dig into his memories to rank some uh, pretty brutal places that he may have been. That's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Matt Hasselbeck Show on the Mike Salk Show on 710 ESPN Seattle. Got a list? 
Time to put it in order. Fred Dwarmfor's house. Top five. Top five meals that I have ever had. This is Ranked. To be honest, that list was really biased. Brought to you by Carter Volkswagen. Every morning at 945 on the Mike Salk Show. That top ten list. I'm not buying that. Ranked. Yeah, we are ranking things, but doing it with Matt Hasselbeck today as the Matt Hasselbeck Show continues. Every Wednesday, we're going to be doing this throughout the season from 9 to 10. Excited to have Matt with us. It's been a a fun 45 minutes or so, so far, and just a few minutes left to go. And Matt, we thought we'd bring you into what we generally do uh, at this time, which is we rank things. And if you saw the video of the sewage dripping on people at, uh, Mm. at in Washington at their stadium earlier in the week, we thought we would ask you, because you've been in plenty of locker rooms from... High school, through college at BC, and then playing for a few different teams in the NFL, certainly on the road. What are the five worst locker rooms you've been in ranked? Okay, well, we're talking visiting locker rooms yes. because the home locker rooms are nice. I was tempted to go Kansas City Chiefs number five, okay? But their clubhouse guys are so amazing. They always had a great barbecue going in the parking lot and a cold beer. So I'm instead, I'm going to go number five. Dallas Cowboys, AT&T Stadium. And you might think that's a new new stadium. But here's the thing. It's AT&T Stadium. I have an AT&T phone. No cell phone reception in the visitor (laughs) locker room at AT AT&T Stadium. What the heck is that? What's that about? That's bad branding. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So So Dallas, we're going number five, Dallas. Yeah. Uh, And and other other than that, it's beautiful. But you can't have Wi-Fi and you can't have cell reception. I mean, what do you really have? So uh, number four, I'm going to go the old San Francisco 49ers candlestick. Mm. Okay. The locker room in itself, tight. You got to shower with the coaches. Very, Mm. very small, awkward moments. But the real reason it's number four on the walkout, anybody over like six foot two, six foot three, you will hit your head on like this very sharp object above the door on your way out it's literally a, a major hazard so they're they're the fourth worst that place seems like it would have been cold was it cold in there too it just seemed like it was always cold at candlestick no i was like wet and kind of uh Ugh. slippery but it was so historic that i almost looked past it because it's so cool to play on the right. same field as jerry rice and joe montana and steve okay. young and all those guys all right number three Number three, New Orleans Saints, not the new one, the old stadium. It was so brutal. But here's the worst part, okay? The bathroom situation was so bad. There was like one toilet for the whole team. And so literally I can remember play, getting ready to play games. I'd be halfway in my uniform. So I've got like my game shoes on, my pants, like pads in my pants. And it's early enough. I'm running up into the concourse using the bathroom upstairs <laughs> before I'm playing the Saints. You know, like walking by. Security's all there. You know, they're all hanging out. They had to get there early. Like, hey, what's up, man? Hey, how you doing? Hey, good luck today. Okay. Like very friendly people. But it's, uh, it's like not, the Baker they, they Mayfield just, commercial where he's in charge of the stadium for progressive. <laughs> Matt, you kind of the bathroom. Like Upstairs, right? kind kind of like that. So they have a new stadium, and it's a good thing. Okay, number two, the second worst stadium for visiting locker rooms got to be Buffalo. I mean, it's a cool place to play. Their crowd's amazing. Their visiting stadium, their visiting locker room, awful. So a lot of times in a visiting locker room, there's like a hot tub option and a cold tub. So it's hot tub before the game, cold tub after the game. There, at least, you know, when I was playing, there was nothing. So you would fill up 
garbage cans with like warm water and that was the hot tub like so big giant trash cans you see players like sitting in there before the game like yeah this is i'm in like the jacuzzi quote unquote but no you're just in a trash can with warm water like lukewarm water (laughs) that that gets them the number two spot that certainly does okay i'm not surprised by that that one seems like i would have guessed that was going to be on the list incredible point all right what is the worst locker room you've ever been in Okay, I mean, I think this would probably be a hundred percenter for every every player in the NFL. It's got to be the old Oakland Raiders stadium. Like that was just something else. There's nowhere to sit. There's nowhere to change. There's nowhere to do anything. Even if you get hurt, uh, like you go get an X-ray, the doctors will say something to you like, "Hey, it says your wrist isn't broken, but." With that machine that we just took the X-ray with, who knows, man? We'll get a, we'll get a real X-ray when we get home, you know. And so, not only was it like you didn't necessarily feel like comfortable in the locker room, like when you would leave the locker room, it was like the kind of thing where the veteran players were like, "Hey, hey leave your helmet on when you while you're walking to the field as well." Like this is not this is not the safest place to be. It creates an incredible home field uh, advantage, and you know now that like I'm not playing against. Raiders, you get to meet like Raider Nation and all that kind of stuff, and they're really wonderful people. And just, but the intimidation factor, especially as a young player, yeah. uh, is, awesome. is that that's the real deal. And it starts, it starts for sure with uh, you know when you walk into the locker room. And imagine the A's still play there, so good. Yeah, the A's still play there. Hey, I won't even mention that you used to have to like drop back on second base, you know, right. back in the dirt field too. Uh, even when the A's weren't playing there, you'd still have the dirt on Showering the with the coaches sounds great. Um, we used to have, I, there were some, for some reason, did you have this when you were younger? Do you remember they used to sometimes have bathroom stalls that would, didn't have a door? Yeah, Michigan State. That's that's if you go play at Michigan State, no no not only is there not like a door on the stall or back then anyway, there was no doors on the side of the of the toilets. It was we had that in high school in our gym bathrooms, like, oh, if you want to use it, you're there just hanging out with everybody. Gross. That's how that's good for team bonding though. The team gets closer together. I don't know. I don't it wasn't for us, especially when you'd walk in and like, you know, seventy five year old coach was the one using the bathroom, so Matt, thank you. This is great. I really enjoyed it. We'll do it again next week at 9 o'clock. Thank you very much. Sounds good. Talk to you you guys soon.